Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. Welcome back, iconographers. It's almost Thanksgiving. You hungry? For knowledge? I'm going to spend a moment on a cartoon that I kind of hate because I think we should consider the lowest common denominator when it comes to interpreting Thanksgiving. In 1972, Hanna-Barbera did an animated holiday special called The Thanksgiving That Almost Wasn't. In the special, a family of modern-day squirrels tells their little child squirrel the story of their ancestor squirrel, who helped make sure the first Thanksgiving that the Pilgrims shared with the Native Americans in 1621 happened. But I'll bet you didn't know if it hadn't been for your great-great-great-grandfather Jeremy Squirrel, there never would have been a Thanksgiving. Really? Gosh! Tell me about it, Dad! What did he do? Well, it all started way back in the year 1620. That's when a hundred... This is the song that plays multiple times during the cartoon's brief runtime. As you've likely already guessed from the quality of the songcraft here, this special is not good. It is possibly one of the least good things I've ever seen. It contains no traces of goodness. In under half an hour, I had all my childhood nostalgia for Hanna-Barbera animation pummeled out of me. It suddenly became clear that the animators behind Scooby-Doo, the Flintstones, and Yogi Bear were every ounce the shortcut-taking, animation-recycling cheapskates that they have been accused of being for decades by critics who despise them for undercutting the ability of other studios to put out quality animation. So yeah, I do not recommend that you watch the Thanksgiving that almost wasn't. Resist temptation. Don't do it. Make it a Thanksgiving that actually wasn't. I've brought it up here only because contained within these 30 minutes is a perfect artifact of brainless, some might say thoughtless, Thanksgiving escapism. This right here is our id, made musical. When we let our guard down, are lowered into a tryptophan-induced stupor, and are asked to free associate on the first Thanksgiving, the images in this special are the stuff we blurred out. Buttons popping off overstuffed pilgrim vests, massive gold buckles everywhere, Turkeys the size of preteen children and pumpkin pies, both wafting cartoon steam. Shrubbery the color of a well-tended bonfire. A sea of tall black pilgrim hats with a few feather headdresses popping up here and there. All those heads bowed in prayer around overloaded picnic tables. When did the pilgrims even have time to build those picnic tables? This is Iconography, and I'm Charles Gustine, your guide on this tour of icons, real and imagined. The last stop on our tour of New England's icons was Salem, Massachusetts, home of what we identified as the October Puritans, the witch-mad judges and accusers that perpetrated a tragedy in 1692 and have become the cornerstone of a Halloween mecca because of it. At the beginning of our just-wrapped two-part series on the Salem Witch Trials, I said that Halloween and Thanksgiving perfectly represent twin poles of New England's iconographic landscape. Spending a Halloween in Salem is like reenacting the death throes of a beautiful idea. An idea that we throw a birthday party for every Thanksgiving. Of friends, old and new, sharing the land and what they've grown on it tolerantly, joyfully, and, well, thankfully. I did announce I'd have plenty to say about that rosy little picture in an upcoming episode. And, uh, oh, would you look at that? That episode is here. I'll try not to keep you too long. I'm going to keep this episode shorter so you can go do holiday things like be social and gorge yourself. Think of this episode as an appetizer to our upcoming main course episodes on the Mayflower and Plymouth Rock. 
Those episodes will look at similar ideas, exploring how this group of colonists ascended to iconhood through choices made by Americans managing their legacies centuries after these early colonists had passed on. Americans like the focus of this episode, the indomitable and largely forgotten Sarah Josepha Hale, a stalwart keeper and promoter of New England traditions who began editing magazines in 1828, who began using that platform to lobby for Thanksgiving, being a nationally recognized late November holiday in 1837, and who did both tirelessly pretty much up until her death in the late 1870s. Along the way, during the nation-rending tumult of the Civil War, Sarah Josepha Hale very likely played a large role in getting President Lincoln to issue his Thanksgiving proclamation of 1863. Permit me, as editress of the ladies' book, to request a few minutes of your precious time, she wrote in a letter to the president dated September 29, 1863, while laying before you a subject of deep interest to myself and, as I trust, even to the president of our republic of some importance. This subject is to have the day of our annual Thanksgiving made a national and fixed union festival. We don't know for certain if Hale's direct plea was the reason that Lincoln went ahead and made Thanksgiving a national and fixed Union festival in 1863, but don't think for a moment that Sarah was not someone who could bend the ear of the president. She was like if the 1860s had an Oprah. Whatever the case, Sarah got her wish. Lincoln's was the first in an unbroken string of yearly presidential proclamations that continued until 1941 when Congress fully achieved Sarah Josepha Hale's vision and passed a joint resolution that officially put Thanksgiving on the calendar. That all starts here with Lincoln, grateful for steady population increases, minds that give their iron and coal freely, and peace with other nations if not at home. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged, as with one heart and one voice, by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea, and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Does it really start with Lincoln, though? I mean, our Thanksgiving pageants don't reenact 1863, after all. Instead, they try to recreate the fall of 1621. The chief way we commune with the pilgrims now is the yearly seance we hold with them on the fourth Thursday of each November, where we retell the story of the first Thanksgiving, which saw the pilgrims and their native allies meet up for a joyful feast and give thanks for a bountiful harvest. To help save us some time, is it cool with you if I don't spend too much time on the idea that the cartoon version of the Thanksgiving celebration that took place in 1621 with the buckles and the feather headdresses and turkeys is inaccurate? I hope I'm not blowing your mind if I tell you that there's no guarantee that turkeys were on the menu or that pumpkins were generations from being mashed into pies, that um, the Plymouth settlers didn't wear all black, didn't put buckles on everything, that the Native American Wampanoag people didn't dress like extras in a Hollywood western and that they far outnumbered the residents of Plymouth nearly two to one, among many other things. However, this may blow your mind. It certainly caused a little implosion in mine when I found out. This celebration didn't even necessarily take place in November. Plymouth experts like James Dietz and James Baker have agreed that while the actual dates are lost to time, the festival was likely to have occurred between late September and late October. It's possible the leaves hadn't even begun to change yet. 
Part 1. Appetizers Our corn did prove well, and God be praised, we had a good increase of Indian corn, and our barley indifferent good. But our peas not worth the gathering, for we feared they were too... This is the only contemporary account we have of that day, actually three days, in 1621, where the Wampanoag Sachem Massasoit and his tribe visited the colony of settlers at Plymouth. This is written by colonists Edward Winslow and William Bradford. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, that so we might after have a special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl, as with a little help besides served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest their greatest King Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. When today we partake of our plenty on the fourth Thursday in November, our celebration strikes some similar notes to the sparse melody that Winslow plays here in his letter to England. But over the centuries, we've added new harmonies, counter-melodies, counterpoint, syncopation, even some dissonance. That's not unusual. That's kind of the bread and butter of this podcast, an icon evolving over time. The way this usually goes is that we are introduced to a theme, and over time, as people explore that theme year in and year out, they add related ideas that change the theme in interesting ways. And just like that, a tradition is born. That tradition wasn't there, and then suddenly, it was. Time passes, and the originators of the theme, the people who made it possible, pass far out of living memory. And the theme becomes a sort of spectral thing, translucent and malleable. So weird jolts of ideas start to bend and contort the theme, so it's still recognizable as coming from the same idea, but also so that it would look nearly unrecognizable to the first people to hear it. Let enough time pass, and it's possible that an insurgent counter-theme that would be actively offensive to those first revelers takes over, playing over everything else that's come before, so we have a full, complex symphony of ideas. To hear a good example of this arc, you can listen back to Season 1's episode on Guy Fawkes Day, a British holiday which also traces its roots back to the Jacobian era, and which has seen Guy go from villain to footnote to anti-hero. That seems, at first glance, to be what we have here with the Pilgrims and their Autumn Feast, a tradition that was practiced for so long that it was anything but traditional. It changed. I don't know if I want to do this to you, just as you're getting ready to celebrate this holiday. It might be too much. <sighs> Alright, I'm gonna do it. Thanksgiving isn't a symphony. It's a mashup. It's two totally different songs that got thrown together, and the beats matched, and the chords from one sort of worked with the melody of the other. Like, it worked well enough, and so we all started singing along. Alright, let's press pause. I'm going to isolate song number one, the chords, the, the foundation, the real Thanksgiving, as played by the doyen of Thanksgiving, its grand dame, editress extraordinaire, Sarah Josepha Hale. Part two, giving thanks. In 1827, Sarah Josepha Hale, a 39-year-old single mother of five children between the ages of five and 13, 
published her debut novel, Northwood, Life North and South. It was published in England under the title A New England Tale. Oh yes, this is someone I'm very excited to talk about on the New England season of Iconography. Partly because I can't imagine a life more befitting of the title A New England Tale. Birthplace, New Hampshire. Father, Revolutionary War veteran, fought at Bunker Hill. Mother, a willful, forward-thinking, open-minded woman who believed in the equal education of the sexes, went against the norms of the times and homeschooled her daughter using her brother's school books. Career? A decades-long perch atop the publishing industry, making and breaking the careers of writers. And her interests? Preserving New England history and traditions. Which is another reason that I'm downright giddy to introduce you to Sarah if you haven't been previously acquainted. As you get to know more about her, she'll start to seem familiar if you met some of my favorite people from season one. There were rival poppy ladies, Anna Garin and Moina Michael, without whom the Commonwealth wouldn't have its beloved remembrance poppy to represent those who have fallen in service to their country. There were the contributions of the cantankerous 18th century antiquarian Joseph Ritson, who loved the French Revolution and gave us a Robin Hood who steals from the rich and gives to the poor. Before Ritson, he just stole. And of course, there's Charles Dickens, who was not content to be the most celebrated novelist of his day, and really, really wanted to be the editor of a magazine so that he could feel a part of people's homes and tell them about the Christmas traditions they should be celebrating. These are our icon makers. They lobby, they write, they footnote, they travel, and plead. All in service of a pet project most of their contemporaries don't quite understand. And then generations later, their visions have been fully realized, are thoroughly understood thanks to their tireless work, and it is they, the icon makers, who are barely understood. Outside of Dickens, who has been misunderstood in his own way as the quote-unquote inventor of Christmas rather than its most tireless cheerleader, these icon makers don't get the glory. They work in service of history, and in hugging it so tightly and lifting it up so high, they inadvertently leave their fingerprints all over it. But no one thought to keep a record of their fingerprints in the database, so it can be hard to find a match when we're looking for their influence. But their influence is massive. Without people like Anna and Moina, Joseph and Charles and Sarah, icons don't happen. Sarah Josepha Hale, for example, has her fingerprints all over the iconography of Boston. Before she had even started her yearly Thanksgiving campaign in earnest, she made her mark as the extraordinarily media-savvy leader of a massive fundraising drive that made the completion of the long-unfinished Bunker Hill Monument possible. The obelisk that wraps up Boston's Freedom Trail, serves as the inspiration for the now iconic Zakin Bridge, was only completed after decades of mismanagement and hopelessness because Sarah used her platform as editor of Godey's Ladies Book, the most popular magazine of its day, to organize a phenomenally successful craft fair at downtown Boston's Quincy Market in 1840. Her army of crafters raised over $30,000, which in 1840 was plenty of money to make monuments go higher. And so, her work done, the monument to veterans like her father successfully erected, Sarah turned her attention to preserving another important facet of early 19th century New England life, the Thanksgiving holiday. The Thanksgiving tradition did indeed date back to colonial New England, part of a cycle of church-dictated fasts and thanksgivings that came over with the Puritans from England. These were not a holiday-celebrating people. They spurned Christmas and Easter and the like for being unfaithful to the scripture, 
but they did channel their challenges and successes into community events. Thanksgivings might sound more fun than fasts, but these were both solemn occasions for prayer and prostration before the Almighty. Churchgoing was an integral part of Thanksgiving, even as, over time, it transformed from an actual giving of thanks for the autumn harvest, good harvest, bro, let's thank God, into an expected yearly tradition. One man, Charles Dudley Wallace, looking back at his New England childhood from 1878, sighed, Thanksgiving itself was rather an awful feast, very much like Sunday, except for the enormous dinner. But oh, what a dinner it was. Sarah first wrote about it in 1827 in her novel Northwood, aka A New England Tale. She paints a loving picture of a feast that doesn't seem all that different from the feasts of 2018. And the more the better, it being considered an honor for a man to sit down to his Thanksgiving dinner surrounded by a large family. The provision is always sufficient for a multitude, every farmer in the country being, at this season of the year, plentifully supplied, and everyone proud of displaying his abundance and prosperity. The roasted turkey took precedence on this occasion, being placed at the head of the table, and well did it become its lordly station, sending forth the rich odor of its savory stuffing, and finally covered with the froth of the basting. Turkey? Check. Is there pumpkin pie though, Sarah? There was a huge plum pudding, custards and pies of every name and description ever known in Yankee land. Yet the pumpkin pie occupied the most distinguished niche. Yum. We lost the plum pudding somehow. We should bring those back. But yeah, I mean, this is our Thanksgiving. Sarah, the monument builder, didn't want to make any additions to this structure. She loved it just the way it was. It was move-in ready, as it were. Instead, her challenge would be inviting everyone else inside. Thanksgiving was a tradition only to New Englanders. It was by no means a national celebration. We have too few holidays, Sarah wrote in Northwood the first time she played a theme that she would play incessantly in her later years to anyone who would listen, including the President of the United States. Thanksgiving, like the 4th of July, should be considered a national festival and observed by all our people as an exponent of our Republican institutions. Getting people to buy into a holiday where they hung out with family, went to dances, and ate themselves silly, that was the easy part. Getting all 29 states and counting to agree to do it on the same day proved to be a challenge worthy of a crusade. In 1847, Sarah wrote the first of her yearly, sometimes more than yearly, editorials on the march towards a national Thanksgiving. The governor of New Hampshire has appointed Thursday, November 25th, as the day of annual Thanksgiving in that state. We hope every governor in the 29 states will appoint the same day, 25th of November, as the day of Thanksgiving. Then the whole land would rejoice at once. No dice. See, Thanksgiving wasn't like a birthday celebration or anniversary that you could mark on your calendar. It wasn't celebrating any historical event. And I know what you're thinking, we'll get to 1621 soon. It was just about taking stock of the very recent past. When it came to a date, the people took the direction of the church and waited patiently for an official Thanksgiving to be declared. When it fell to the governors to proclaim a Thanksgiving, there was no set template to follow. It could be in December. 1848, Sarah's at it again in Godey's Ladies' Book. The appointment of the day rests with the governors of each state, and hitherto, though the day of the week was always Thursday, that of the months had been varied. But the last Thursday of last November was kept as Thanksgiving Day in 24 of the 29 states, all that kept such a feast at all. 
May the last Thursday of the next November witness this glad and glorious festival, this feast of the ingathering of harvest, extended over our whole land, from the St. John's to the Rio Grande, from the Plymouth Rock to the Sunset Sea. This was a bad time in American history to try and get everyone all the way down to the Rio Grande on the same page about, well, anything. And Sarah's editorials in the late 1850s start to take on a much more political tone. 1859. If every state would join in Union Thanksgiving on the 24th of this month, would it not be a renewed pledge of love and loyalty to the Constitution of the United States, which guarantees peace, prosperity, progress, and perpetuity to our great republic? And 1860. Everything that contributes to bind us in one vast empire together, to quicken the sympathy that makes us feel from the icy north to the sunny south that we are one family, each a member of a great and free nation, not merely the unit of a remote locality, is worthy of being cherished. We believe our Thanksgiving Day, if fixed and perpetuated, will be a great and sanctifying promoter of this national spirit. As previously established, Sarah gave up on the governors and finally found success with President Lincoln in 1863. I find, she wrote to the president, there are obstacles not possible to be overcome without legislative aid, that each state should by statute make it obligatory on the governor to appoint the last Thursday of November annually as Thanksgiving Day or, as this would require years to be realized, it has occurred to me that a proclamation from the President of the United States would be the best, surest, and most fitting method of national appointment. Thus, by the noble example and action of the President of the United States, the permanency and unity of our great American festival of Thanksgiving would be forever secured. Excuse the liberty I have taken. With profound respect, yours truly, Sarah Josepha Hale, editress of The Ladies' Book. And so a new tradition was established, as permanent and unifying as an unofficial, unwritten rule can be. Every year, the president declared Thanksgiving, usually for the last Thursday of November, listed a bunch of reasons why, and families gathered. This isn't where Sarah's story ends. She continued to write about Thanksgiving every year into the 1870s, beginning to lobby for the passage of an act by Congress appointing the last Thursday in November as a perpetual holiday. An act which would take another few decades to pass and would establish the fourth Thursday rather than the last Thursday of November as Thanksgiving. Not insignificant stuff, but for the most part, when Sarah celebrated her last Thanksgiving in 1878, five months before her death at 90, the holiday was pretty much a dead ringer for the one we celebrate today. Even American football games on Thanksgiving Day had just been established as tradition before Sarah Josepha Hale gave her last thanks. I mean, listen to this passage from a children's book from 1868, Dotty Dimple at Play, and tell me you couldn't have pretty much exactly this conversation with a little niece or cousin right now. Mr. Parlin turned to the youngest daughter and said, Alice, do you know what Thanksgiving Day is for? Yes, sir, for turkey. Is that all? No, sir, um, for plum pudding. What do you say, Susie? It comes in the almanac, just like Christmas, sir, and it's something about the Pilgrim Fathers and the Mayflower. No, Susie, it does not come in the almanac. The governor appoints it. 
We have so many blessings that he sets apart one day in a year in which we are to think them over and be thankful for them. It may come in the almanac now, just like Christmas, but it's kind of reassuring to know that as long as Thanksgiving has been a national celebration, the thanking and the eating have been locked in a battle for supremacy. This passage does something rather remarkable though, not that it sounds at all remarkable to us. It marks the entrance of a third competitor into the ring, this Pilgrim Father figure. You may notice that until Susie brought the Pilgrims up, they've been conspicuously absent from this episode since Edward Winslow wrote his letter to England in 1621. Sarah Josepha Hale never mentioned them in all her exhortations about the Thanksgiving tradition. Lincoln didn't mention them in his proclamation. Actually, no president does until 1905 by implication and until 1939 by name. No mention of Winslow, no Governor Bradford, no Miles Standish, no John and Priscilla Alden, no Squanto or Massasoit. That's because to revelers of Sarah Hale's generation, there had never been any association between their cherished Thanksgiving tradition and the colony of Plymouth. It was just something they did every year in New England, going back a long way. No one knew quite how long. They weren't commemorating or reenacting the first Thanksgiving as we do now because they had no idea it existed. The celebration Winslow wrote about in 1621 in the text that became known as Mort's Relation wasn't identified as the first Thanksgiving until 1841. In a literal footnote, this was the first Thanksgiving, the Harvest Festival of New England. The irony is, this little footnote in a book called Chronicles of the Pilgrim Fathers of the Colony of Plymouth changed history. Not in the sense where nothing was ever the same and the people of the 1800s did something dramatically different because of it. They did, but I mean it in the sense that this footnote looked back at an event that had never been a Thanksgiving at all and made it the most important Thanksgiving of all time. It actually changed history. Part 3. Dig in! If Thanksgiving is a mashup of two themes, the New England tradition of Thanksgiving and the Pilgrim's Harvest Festival with the Wampanoags in 1621, then Reverend Alexander Young, author of that 1641 tome, Chronicles of the Pilgrim Fathers, is the DJ who mashed the themes up. If there's one thing I want you to get from this look at Thanksgiving, one salient nugget of iconography and action to take away with you, it's this. For all the work, all the articles and letters, and the sheer volume of words that Sarah Josepha Hale put into her decades-long Thanksgiving crusade, Alexander Young, one of her New England contemporaries who shared a passion for local history, may have done more to change the course of the holiday in one freaking sentence. Which is probably fine with Sarah if she wasn't trying to change Thanksgiving one bit. And neither was Reverend Young, I don't think. He probably made a pretty rational assumption based on the evidence he had, having no idea it would transform everything about the way Thanksgiving was understood and everything about the way the pilgrims were understood. It's tough to get a bead on Alexander Young, for as little as Sarah Josepha Hale is recognized today, the number of biographies and essays on her look like a veritable library next to the slim profile we have of the middle-aged Unitarian minister who published the first full copy of Mort's Relation in Centuries, making particular note of the passage where Edward Winslow mentions the three-day festival, calling it the first Thanksgiving. We'll explore this a lot more in upcoming episodes, but for a very long time, the Winslows and Bradfords and Standishes were not thought to be even a little bit important. 1720, the hundredth anniversary of their arrival in Massachusetts, came and went without anyone making a fuss, because, I mean, do you celebrate the anniversary of the day your great-grandparents immigrated? 
It was only once America declared its independence and, in its rebellion, sought to form its own identity separate from Mother England that Plymouth Rock and the Mayflower started to register as important icons worth remembering. The issue being, it was a little too late to do much effective remembering by the late 1700s, as we'll see when Plymouth Rock tells us its side of the story in a few episodes' time. This was about the time New Englanders started celebrating Forefathers' Day in December, a commemoration of the landing of the Pilgrims at Plymouth. This was the day every year on which all thoughts about Plymouth were focused, and for a good long while, Thanksgiving and Forefathers' Day coexisted happily in neighboring months because they had nothing to do with each other. In 1820, when the Pilgrims were thrown a big 200th anniversary party, having by far their biggest year since they had all died in the 1600s, no one mentioned Thanksgiving, even though the festival was a thriving tradition at that point, because no one knew about the Pilgrim Wampanoag Feast of 1621. They couldn't read about it. It had actually been lost to time. A version of Winslow and Bradford's Mort's Relation was extant, but it was an abridged version published in 1625 that skipped over the harvest celebration completely. Now that same year, a really big thing happened. A full copy of Mort's Relation was discovered in Philadelphia. And no big declaration was made. No one sent the fastest messenger over to Plymouth to tell the bicentennial attendees to stop what they were doing. The secrets of the pilgrims had been unlocked. Mort's Relation did what old letters do. It languished in an archive waiting to be perused by an interested historian. And the good Reverend Young was that interested historian. He was one of the first people to read Winslow's recollection of Massasoit's visit to Plymouth in over two centuries, and he came to a rather natural conclusion. Reverend Young celebrated Thanksgiving every autumn. People gathered, they ate a lot, they prayed, they laughed. In his letter, Edward Winslow mentioned wild fowls. It wasn't quite turkeys, but it could have been. The festivities clearly took place in autumn. It didn't say it was November, but it might have been. Celebrations naturally change over time, which could explain away any inconsistencies. But this union of two cultures over a shared meal seemed too close a match not to be the lost origin of the yearly Thanksgiving tradition that seemed to have no clear origin. And it's not like Reverend Young made a big deal about it in his book. He just called it out in a footnote. This here was the first Thanksgiving. It goes back to the pilgrims. It doesn't. Or if it does, it doesn't go back to this 1621 festival. Remember, Thanksgivings were solemn, church-decreed days of prayer. We don't know exactly what this 1621 celebration was, but it wasn't that. If Governor Bradford or Elder Brewster heard you call their three-day harvest party a Thanksgiving, they would probably order a fast as repentance. There were actual Thanksgivings in this period. One was set in Connecticut for October 12, 1637, for example a much-discussed early American Thanksgiving because it was set as a day of appreciation for the safe return of colonial troops from what we now know as the Mystic Massacre. Those troops had trapped hundreds of members of the Pequot tribe, men, women, and children, inside their palisade, set it ablaze, and shot anyone who tried to escape. This legacy of genocide has always made the story of the first Thanksgiving, especially in its sanitized form, the picnic tables, the joint prayer, the turkey, kind of hard to swallow. I doubt Reverend Young knew how much he was complicating Thanksgiving by handing it over to the pilgrims. He just saw the harmony between their story and the Thanksgiving story that Sarah Josepha Hale was beginning to tell the people of America. Of union, sharing, plenty, and thanks. By 1841, 
The New England Thanksgiving tradition she espoused had been secularized enough that it actually closely resembled this long-ago Pilgrim Wampanoag celebration. It wasn't right, but it felt really right. The chords worked with the melody. It had a beat everyone could dance to. The misattribution of the first Thanksgiving to the Pilgrims did two interesting things. The first was that, eventually, after a few decades, when Young's assumption caught on, it transformed Thanksgiving completely into a chance for schoolchildren to learn about early colonial America, about the way the Pilgrims overcame a harsh winter and, with help from their new native friends, built a self-sustaining utopia of tolerance and buckles, which did nothing to endear the holiday to little Sally Brown in a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Anyway, why should I give thanks on Thanksgiving? What have I got to be thankful for? All it does is make more work for us at school. Do you know what, what we have to do now? We have to write an essay on Stanley Miles. You mean Miles Standish? I can't keep track of all those people. Everything Sarah Josepha Hale loved about the holiday was still there, but it was now done in service of honoring all those people our forefathers and the meal they shared with their neighbors. Basically, it was dressed up in a pilgrim costume. Are we going to have a prayer? It's Thanksgiving, you know. Before we're served, shouldn't we say grace? In the year 1621, the pilgrims held their first Thanksgiving feast. They invited the great Indian chief, Massasoit, who brought 90 of his brave Indians and a great abundance of food. Governor William Bradford and Captain Miles Standish were honored guests. Which brings us to another interesting thing that happened. Adding the Pilgrims to Thanksgiving killed Forefathers' Day. Well, Christmas did too. Christmas was not a super prominent thing in New England when Forefathers' Day and Thanksgiving happily coexisted, and the revitalization of Christmas in the Victorian era, thanks Dickens, crowded out the December 22nd Forefathers' celebration. But also, there was only room for one day dedicated to thinking about Plymouth Colony in this town. And look, the day with turkey and pumpkin pie was always going to win that shootout. There is one town where there's room left for both celebrations. Plymouth, naturally. Every December 22nd, there's a parade in Plymouth, a reading of the Mayflower Compact. Thanksgiving in Plymouth is more complicated. Because it is a major tourist attraction that week, obviously, but also because it is the nexus for most of the people in the world who know and care that the pilgrims did not actually celebrate the first Thanksgiving, and want you to know too. Most importantly, it's the meeting point for the National Day of Mourning, organized by the United American Indians of New England since 1970, when a speech meant to be delivered at a 350th anniversary celebration by Frank James, a prominent Wampanoag leader, was suppressed for being too inflammatory. The theme of the anniversary celebration is brotherhood, the organizers said, and anything inflammatory would have been out of place. Frank James bowed out of the official ceremony and organized a counter-ceremony in Plymouth, around the statue of Massasoit, the sachem of the Wampanoag, on Coles Hill. And there, surrounded by protesters, he gave his speech. This is a portion of that speech. We the Wampanoag welcomed you, the white man, with open arms, little knowing that it was the beginning of the end, that before fifty years were to pass, the Wampanoag would no longer be a free people. You, the white man, are celebrating an anniversary. We the Wampanoags will help you celebrate in the concept of a beginning. It was the beginning of a new life for the Pilgrims. Now, 350 years later, it is a beginning of a new determination for the original American, the American Indian. 
This is the legacy of Thanksgiving Now. It is a time for family feasting and football watching in the privacy of one's own home. But it's also an opportunity for a very public discussion on what legacies are. For better and worse, thanks to a footnote of history that grew into a history all its own, America has largely chosen to ignore everything that came before Plymouth's founding, and most of what came after it when it comes to discussing the country's origins. And this was a choice. That's one of the most interesting parts of this. It wasn't preordained. It wasn't destined. It took work. It took editorials. It took accidents. It took proclamations. And it took time. Traditions aren't always as traditional as they sound. In many cases, they have power because they change to suit the times, not because they stay the same. And Thanksgiving is doing just that, even now. We are caught between an understanding that the feather headdresses and buckles that Hanna-Barbera were trotting out as recently as 1972 aren't just inaccurate, they're offensive, and an inability to come to terms with the full host of inaccuracies that got us to that image of Thanksgiving in the first place. I suppose we should be thankful that we've come as far as we have, and also thankful that history shows things will change, and we have room to change them for the better. Alright, I'll have more to say about the complex mythology of the pilgrims in the next few episodes, but for now, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving, if that's your thing. And if anyone tries to wrestle the remote away from you and tell you that all the football is distracting you from the real history of the holiday, you go right on ahead and tell them that actually, football has been a fixed part of the Thanksgiving tradition for just as long as the pilgrims have, if not longer, and they can go have a slice of humble pie with their pumpkin pie. Iconography is written and produced by me, Charles Gustine. Thanks to Carol Zoll for script editing and feedback, as well as making her debut on the podcast as Sarah Josepha Hale. T.H. Ponders provided the voice of Abraham Lincoln. He's the man behind Accession, a fantastic podcast about the experience of museum going, and he's graciously allowed me to bring some ideas I had for this episode about how much magazine publishing influenced our idea of Thanksgiving over to his feed, where you'll find an episode which I've written and narrated that's all about the iconic Norman Rockwell painting, Freedom from Want. You may not know the painting by name, but I bet you know it. Grandma holding a giant turkey, grandpa behind her feasting on it with his eyes, family gathered around the table laughing. If you're not already iconographically stuffed, you can find my Thanksgiving episode on Norman Rockwell in the podcast feed over at Accession. Iconography is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check all of them out at hubspokeaudio.org. In the latest episode of Soonish, Wade Roush examines a road not taken, or really, a single-track monorail line not taken. It's a history of the monorail system Boston almost got. And I might just make a few appearances in the episode doing a southern accent, because of course I do. Check that episode out at soonishpodcast.org or anywhere fine podcasts are available.